My name is John O'Sullivan. I'm the president of the Danube Institute in Budapest, and I'd like to welcome you to our Buddha Hills podcast. Eric Hendricks and I are recording this conversation in a historic villa that overlooks the Danube from one of the eponymous Buddha Hills. Our guest today is Edward Lutfak, born in Arad, Romania, raised in both Sicily and London, now domiciled for many years in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Uh, Dr. Lutfak is a celebrated historian of grand strategy, a superlative strategist himself who counts many governments among his clients. We're, we're honored and pleased. Uh, thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Uh, Dr. Lutfak, in uh, 2020, you wrote in the London Review of Books that, quote, the long-term confrontation between China and an assortment of countries, Australia, Japan, the U.S., is well underway. Yes. And I think we could begin by just asking, where do you see this confrontation today? Well, this confrontation has been uh, escalating very, very slowly for a long time um, because there was a turning point in Chinese policy. And in the year 2004, uh, a person that I pronounce or mispronounce his name as Zhang Bijan, Zhang Bijan, went to Hainan, where there's a forum, and at that Hainan forum, he promised that China's rise would be peaceful, peaceful. Now, I know this gentleman personally, and I'm pretty sure that uh, this was a sincere promise. And what happened to this sincere promise, uh, as he told himself, is that after they started quarreling with the Japanese over the islands that the Japanese called Senkaku and the Chinese called Diaotuan, the islands, immediately after that, I went to Beijing and I asked Mr. Zhang Bijan, who is an important person. By the way, he's the one who introduced when Xi Jinping became the head of everything, the party, the government, and so on, it was Zhang Bijan who wrote the People's Daily uh, article uh, presenting the new leader of China. So he's an important person. I asked him, what the hell is going on here? Well, what about peaceful rise? And his answer was a phrase which I forget um, how it's pronounced in Chinese, but translated as runaway horses. Runaway horses. In other words, you have these people who are very poor. Uh, when I first visited Beijing, it smelled like a toilet, you know, because they were using night soil, they called it, to fertilize the green fields around Beijing. And w when was uh, this? Uh, this was in 1976. Okay. Mao was alive. Hmm. He died while he was there. And actually, I was at the funeral at the Great Hall of Peace. You were at the funeral? Of yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a p photograph. It's even online of me standing looking over the body of Mao to make sure he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the point is that I've been going to, I've never been a sinologist. I've never made the effort to learn Chinese characters or anything of the kind. I mean, no sense of sinologist. But I've been a tourist in China for many, many years and many, many friends. So what happened was a very normal thing. You have this smelly, stinky, poor, miserable country. They work, they, they dropped communism, of course, uh, Deng Xiaoping, big time. They started working, they started making money. As soon as they make a little money, they say, oh, we should push our weight around. And we start shoving around. But the one constant of Chinese life is that the leadership is always has no sense whatsoever about the outside world. 
nothing. So the first quarrel was with the Japanese, and it happened to be at the only time after between 1945 and today, the only time when there was a neutralist government in Tokyo, a government that wanted to develop relations with China, that sent its defense minister to China with huge delegation to uh, agreements. And the first time there was a Japanese government that wanted to have distance from the Americans. That's the time when they chose to escalate the, an incident in Senkaku Island there was a drunken Chinese uh, fishing captain who collided and the, they created the whole incident. And the result was mass attacks against a Japanese businessman in China. Even people driving Toyotas were stopped because they're driving a Japanese car. So in other words, and the leadership very strongly encouraged this because it was all triggered by the extreme statements made by the Chinese foreign ministry. So other people's foreign ministries are designed to develop relations, but the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman was inciting action. So there were attacks against Japanese companies and stuff. So the only time when the Japanese were thinking of distancing themselves from Washington, that's when the Chinese punched him in the face. So I go to Beijing and I say, what the hell happened? And Jambi Jan tells me, runaway horses. I actually wrote down the Chinese words. Runaway horses, which means the moment they stop being poor and miserable and starving, oh, they feel very strong, so we have to push around. And they've been doing it from that day to the present and provoking different people. For example, the Indian government was completely determined to avoid confrontation with China, completely. And they, uh, the Prime Minister Singh, uh, well, I published a book in 2012 based on research I did 2010. It's called The Rise of China and the Logical Strategy. This book has been translated in different languages. Uh, and I wrote that book at the time when the Prime Minister in India, Mr. Singh, was de determined not to waste one penny to defend the useless desert, which is what it is, the upper desert of the of Ladakh, the whole Himalayan, uh, worthless Himalayan frontier. We're a poor country. We can't start building roads and highways and military bases there. So, and in Japan, as I said, it was the only neutralist government. That's when I published my book. And in my book, I said, India will become an ally of the United States. Japan will remain an ally of the United States. Australia will, even though the Prime Minister uh, has a completely wrong reputation as pro-Chinese because he happened to speak very good Mandarin and stuff. I said, they will join it. And the who is making this big alliance? Who is building this alliance? Well, NATO was built by the Americans and the British. But this alliance is built only by the Chinese. By the Chinese going around punching people in the face, kicking them, and forcing them into the alliance. And the Indian case is the most dramatic case because the Indian... The whole Indian elite was determined uh, that India should not become the sepoys of the Americans. The sepoys were the native troops that fought for the British. The Indians were determined they're not going to be the frontline country that fights the Chinese. And that's what the Chinese specifically did to this day. But in between creating military incidents, and the last one, 2020, killing about 30 Indian soldiers. In between them, they keep sending ministers, delegations, Xi Jinping himself to say, 
Oh, we want to have good relations. And this little thing on the border doesn't matter. And the next day, some Chinese soldier advances another 220 meters. So this has been going on for 20 years. So this, but this is traditional behavior. I have a matching quote. Uh, we have a matching quote here. In 2020, March, London Review of Books, uh, you wrote, quote, the chief characteristic of China as a power in world affairs is its self-absorption, which exceeds the inherent self-absorption of all very large polities. Countries, correct. They gradually exceed it. Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, it's, I call, uh, the root term is autistic. You know, that's not fair and so on, but autistic. And uh, the, I guess the, uh, the clearest expression of this is that for many years, the Beijing has been telling Taiwan to join China under this system, which is one country, two systems. Okay. In other words, Taiwan would continue to be independent. Taiwan will have everything it has today, but it will be part of China and it will no longer have to face military threats and so on. So it's one country, two systems. Mm-hmm. So it's like somebody in the building, is, there's a girl in the street and is asking her, come upstairs, come upstairs, we'll have a good time. And then she has a friend on the street and the friend hears from upstairs screaming and shouting. And then the guy appears on the balcony and says, come upstairs too. So this is Taiwan and Hong Kong. They, in order for them to have reeled in, reeled in, like to catch a fish, reeled in Taiwan, when they came full control of Hong Kong, they should have behaved perfectly. They should have respected everything in Hong Kong. They should not have arrested anybody, should not have kidnapped booksellers, should not have told the students that they cannot do this and do that. They should have treated Hong Kong under one country, two systems, by respecting Hong Kong system. And this way, they could have got Taiwan. Instead, they keep beating up on Hong Kong and, and expecting Taiwan, in other words, who does this? Only autistic. It's pure autistic, but this is Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Chinese history is unable to deal with foreigners. And also, if I may just say, also uh, social structure, because the Communist Party of China is uh, has 90 million members. It's an, it's an enormous organization, and it's a very closed-off unit. Um, I would assume that this would put incentives on players within that system not to look outward, but to look inward. Right, right. In other words, if, if the entire organization insists that black is white, you better insist, you better say, yes, black is white. Of course, there, there must be people in China who realize the complete lack of logic of trying to attract Taiwan under this formula, one country, two systems and mistreating Hong Kong and beating up Hong Kong and causing people in Hong Kong to escape with small bugs. There must there must be people, but you don't say it at the party meeting. So the party is autistic, okay? And this would be similar to the imperial regime. You see, by 1830 or so, there were plenty of people in China who knew that the British had had guns, had ships with guns that could sink any Chinese ship and they had the artillery, and they could arrive in a Chinese port and bombard the port. And they knew, many people knew that, but they could not tell the imperial institution. 
they couldn't tell. The famous Commissioner Lin, who was there, who was writing letters, there were memorials to the court saying, you know, these people are dangerous. You know, they actually fight. Our generals come in the beautiful uniforms and beautiful brocades, not uniforms. Our generals are very well dressed and they put on a big show, but these British, they fight, you know, they have cannon, they can destroy buildings. These memoranda never reached the, uh, the emperor, never, because they were, they were unacceptable. Well, we might come back to this question of China's preparedness um, militarily, but one of the questions that Eric just raised is, you know, the, the, the facility or, or lack of China on, on in, in terms of foreign affairs and diplomacy. And I'm curious what you make of some of what appear to be diplomatic breakthroughs. Yeah. So China brokered a peace between the Sunni and the Shia, two of the major Sunni and Shia powers in their near abroad. And um, how, how do you read that? Well, the Persian Gulf, it, what happened in the Persian Gulf was that uh, the President Biden was a highly competent president. He knows a lot, he's very experienced. Unfortunately, he has no staff because the Bidenites are all dead. The Biden people are dead, okay? He's an old guy. There's nobody, uh, there's a, you're, you're a former Washingtonian. So there was a Capitol Hill world. He was a senator. All his aides are dead. So the people who are working in the White House are Obama people and Clinton people. And the one thing they have in characteristics is that they don't really want Biden to be very successful, but they're very influenced by the Washington environment. And in the Washington environment, um, because a, a fat Saudi called Khashoggi had written some articles for the Washington Post, the killing of Khashoggi is much more important than U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, much more important. And uh, therefore, destroying relations with Saudi Arabia. And what happened was that that Khashoggi was killed in a very unprofessional way. You know, I was brought up in Palermo, Sicily, and I must deplore this kind of thing, you know. Well, and when you do assassinations- <laughs> e Even the mafia is- Yeah, no, nah, you should yeah, do yeah, a yeah, proper yeah. job, you know, so nobody <laughs> should know. So I deplore that. But what happened next was that uh, Iranian rockets and missiles started arriving in Saudi Arabia from Yemen. And then there was a very destructive attack and when the Saudis asked for more Patriot missiles, the White House said no. Now the deal with the Saudis was, the agreement between the United States and Saudi Arabia was made in a, in a long time ago when they were selling slaves openly in the market in Riyadh. So, you know, the, uh, black slaves. What, what, what period is yep. this? Is this 19th century? No, or, no, or 20th? what 19th century? The agreement starts in 1945 and develops in the 1960s. And there was still open, and there was open still, trading. They were selling slaves in Riyadh, and no American complained about it. But what happened was that suddenly, uh, the, so the American part of the deal was, we protect Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi part of the deal is we supply oil to enable Europe to rise up after World War II, and then to supply oil so that oil does not become the cost of oil does not become an obstacle to the development of economies all around the world. Because the Saudis control the price of oil because they have the extra supply. We all know that. So that was the deal, which is we protect you and you make sure that the world economy can uh, have 
is not burdened by very high oil prices. And then what happened is that when the Iranians attacked Saudis, because this fat Saudi Khashoggi had been killed, suddenly the Americans don't do their part. Which Americans? The Biden White House that contains a, a wise president, knows a lot, and the staffers who know nothing. And, but they are, for them, the killing of a Washington Post journalist is more important than anything like that. And they ruined relations with Saudi Arabia so much that the prince, Mohammed bin Salman, had to turn to others and including China. They, in other words, the Americans, the Chinese failed everywhere except in one place, the Persian Gulf, because the Americans opened the door for them in the way. So I'll tell you something that, uh, uh, specific. Um, I was, I visit, I was in Saudi Arabia six days before Biden arrived. And uh, I met the foreign minister immediately, a rival, and I said, show me the agenda, because the summit meetings are scripted, very, very, very specifically. They're scripted, just like a, a theater or something. And he said to me, I don't have the agenda. So I said, what do you mean you don't have the agenda? Uh, you know, he said, we're not getting the agenda, because in the White House, to the last minute, this Biden's disloyal officials were trying to prevent they were trying to sabotage the visit to the last minute. And they were telling him, you can't shake his hand. Uh, you can't shake his hand. So Biden said, am I supposed to punch him? That's how they reached a compromise of this uh, ridiculous face-to-face. Uh, -face. In other words, the Americans be absolutely violated the agreement with the Saudis. And that agreement was made and maintained at the time when the Saudis were selling slaves in Riyadh. Okay. They in are. the 1960s, okay, suddenly the Americans turn around and the, there is the, Mohammed bin Salman, who's been a real liberalizer, because in Riyadh, I was in my hotel in Riyadh, I could see Saudi women driving up to the hotel, parking their cars, going inside with laptops, meeting foreign businessmen to do business, a complete social revolution. And instead of recognizing that, these people, and so that's a problem of Biden. Biden doesn't have Biden mics. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I've known him for a long time. I guess I have a Biden mic, but I'm not in the White House. I'm just an external consultant to the U.S. government. It was in that capacity that I was in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I had the authority to meet this. By the way, there was no ambassador because the, no ambassador had been sent. They had been withdrawn, not sent. So in this vacuum, Okay, this is where Mohammed bin Salman said, okay, you don't do your job, so I'm going to do my own stuff. Could I ask, though, I mean, this is a brilliant exposition of how Riyadh ended up turning to Beijing. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, how, did, how do you see the fact that Beijing not only was able to, in a sense, recruit Riyadh, but bring Riyadh and Tehran? Uh, oh, no, no, but that, that was a straight, straightforward thing to do, because what happened is that both, the first of all, the Iranians, uh, Iranians are, have a real public relations problem inside Iran. These, you see, they can arrest demonstrators and you can even hang demonstrators, kill demonstrators, but actually they're responding to the demonstrators by reducing their investment and support of Hezbollah and the Syrians and even the Yemenis. They are withdrawing from the support because the people in Tehran who demonstrate Many of them are shouting. They're saying, no Palestine, no Gaza, Iran. In other words, they believe rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, that the reason why they are poor 
as, as poor as they are, is because the Iranian government gives all this money to these allies. So there is a lot of pressure to give less to the allies. Hence, the Iranians wanted to pull back. The Saudis wanted to, to punish the Americans, basically, by inviting in the Chinese, and the Chinese come, uh, cooperated. Uh, in a, and the next move of the Americans is to improve relations with Saudi. So the Saudis use the Chinese to provoke the Americans to do what they should have done anyway. So the, the news or the commentary that suggested that China had arrived at a new role in world affairs as a peace broker, not only in the Middle East, but potentially also in the Ukraine, the yeah. Ukraine-Russia conflict in Europe is, and that the uh, multipolar order is uh, finally upon us, maybe premature. Well, yes, in other words, the Chinese are able to operate in the Persian Gulf. And when they came in this uh, locked, conf in this, uh, in this uh, war of attrition in Europe, the European authorities welcome anybody who offers anything, however low the problem. The only thing Chinese diplomacy cannot deal with is with China's problem, which is not able to prevent the ever-increasing alliance that is constraining China. They're not doing anything to prevent the daily improvement in U.S.-Indian cooperation, the intense cooperation with Vietnam, the Australian providing support for this entire structure by offering many things, including basing, basing in Australia, it's very important. You know, the Singaporean army trains in Australia. They, uh, with, they have ground forces and air force and so on. So Chinese diplomacy is effective in many places except in regard to China. Because in regard to China, they continue to behave autistic. They continue, for example, to provoke the Japanese needlessly and create, you see, the, there used to be a Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, Abe Shinzo. Mm -hmm. And Abe was a convinced nationalist and who wanted to build up military power. The current Prime Minister is less interested, Kishida. But Kishida is being kicked by the Chinese every day. But by the level of aerial naval Chinese authority activity, you know, they're flying their planes provocatively and ships. And so they're driving Kishida, who's a different man than Abe, to behave like Abe, mm -hmm. and to in, every day increase their military commitment and so on. And of course, officially declare that if China attacks Taiwan, Japan will not be indifferent. And you can translate that to mean that they will use their submarines against the Chinese. Okay, So they're failing with Australia, they're failing with Japan, they're failing with India, they're failing with Vietnam in their own area, but they can play, at, you know, in the Persian Gulf, they, they can play this role uh, and so on. Now, who they are succeeding with is their uh, neighbor to the north. And I'm curious the, how, how you read the kind of uh, the, that emerging alliance and also whether you see that as a success or rather actually as a profound failure for yeah. China. Well, you know, uh, the Ukraine war was a big shock for them, big shock for uh, different reasons. Shock number one was that um, the G7 sanctions, which cannot possibly stop Russia because Russia is a country that 
does not import food and does not import energy. The same G7 sanctions applied to China would be drastic consequences. Mm. Just the G7 sanctions. Mm. And in, in the year of 2021, uh, China imported um, approximately 95 million metric tons of soya beans to feed its chicken and its uh, pigs and its cows and even its lamb, which is important for the Muslim population. The move, the move don't eat pork and so on. Um, 95 million metric tons of soya beans and about 30 million metric tons of corn and uh, other things of this sort. This they give to animals and that is they make the, make the meat and the milk and the yogurt. Now in China, there was never any milk or yogurt in China. In 1976, when I lived in Beijing, people were eating vegetables, some wheat, some rice, and a family, they still had big families then, living in Hutong traditional housing. And having one chicken in one week for a family of 10, that was okay. Okay. Now, today, in the Shanghai lockdown, the municipality supplied humpers, humpers, kind of run humpers, with all kinds of food, much better than the Chinese had in 1976, much better. And the Shanghai people said they were starving. Why were you starving? Because they didn't have milk and they didn't have yogurt, which never existed in Chinese life at all. And because they didn't have fresh meat. And instead they had the government stored pork, frozen pork. It turns out they don't like. So uh, if the Chinese did what the Russians did and start a war, and you have the same G7 sanctions, imagine that within six months, Putin was there and they're very hard to find chicken, uh, beef is so supplies, there's only some pork, uh, frozen pork, and and uh, of course, uh, no yogurt, no milk, and so on. That would be, so that was a big shock of the Chinese to realize that just G7 sanctions was, would have a huge impact in them. And if they invade Taiwan, definitely there'll be G7 sanctions, and definitely they won't gather because this stuff, by the way, comes from the United States and Canada, and Brazil and Argentina. So the United States is not going to load cargoes. Canada will not load cargoes, and Brazil and Argentina are an ocean too far because the ship laden with soybeans from Santos in Brazil has to cross the Atlantic, go around the Cape, and somebody will definitely stop it. There is a saying in uh, Chinese, uh, it's eating bitterness, chiku, and um, uh, it's often said in Chinese circles that the Chinese are better at eating bitterness than the Westerners are, Absolutely. but that might be myth or uh, them overestimating themselves. Right. No, no. It's just that if eating bitterness, imagine a foreign country attacks China. China will defend itself and if necessary, eat bitterness to defend itself. But this is quite different. This is where Xi Jinping decides that he uh, wants to uh, continue to assert his belligerent persona by launching an invasion of mm -hmm. Taiwan as a choice, a war of choice uh, for China. But I mean, you're, you're in the a major, war of choice. Well, you're the major strategist here, but the uh, if I if I can share my amateur strategic assessment, it would be that of course the Chinese have this enormous apparatus with which they would convince that it wouldn't be a choice of war, and they would, using their media apparatus, they would uh, convince their domestic public 
which is um, a public that's radically cut off from uh, external information, that actually it was it was American or Taiwanese aggression that 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 forced the Chinese hand. And I, right. I, so I in would assume that it would be in successful. Words, you're going to be running out of meat and dairy products and all that kind of stuff. No eggs. Eggs are a problem because uh, during the uh, even during Mao's times, uh, people's worked very hard to try and get eggs for girls so their skin would have a good quality. Because mm -hmm. when they're low protein, uh, you know, egg-wise and stuff, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, uh, so what we have, of course, is what is called the closed feedback loop, what you were describing. Mm -hmm. Namely, the leader says, we must uh, liberate Taiwan. And then people shout, yes. You know, the party shouts, yes. And then the leader says, well, I have to invite Taiwan. Look, the party demands I invite Taiwan. This is Mussolini on his balcony shouting, uh, I'm going to go after this British and this French. And the crowd says, go, go. And then Mussolini turns around and tells his foreign minister, his son-in-law, China, I have to be aggressive because look, the people demand it. That's a close feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's perfectly possible. Um, the fact that China should not actually undertake military action, which doesn't suit them at all, uh, it uh, doesn't mean they will not do it. You know, throughout history, countries have engaged in wars they should not have done. Mm -hmm. In 2003, I testified before the U.S. Senate that compared to what would happen if the Americans invade Iraq, okay, Saddam Hussein's regime it's not that bad, not that bad. You know, there are the Kurds and the Turkmen and the Shia and the Sunni, and uh, a lot of these sub-Shia, actually, Shama, Bedouins, and so I, in these conditions, I testified, I said, don't go to Iraq. And by the way, if you destroy the Iraqi army, you will need an American Mesopotamian, uh, 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 there have to be a Mesopotamian, uh, uh, kind of constabulary, a Mesopotamian. The American military would become a Mesopotamian. So I testified, and nobody paid attention. Biden did, but even he, I think, I forget how he wrote it. So it was, that testimony is online because it was uh, before uh, Biden, you know, said, oh, we, have no, we have not forgotten. We still, we still remember the, uh, the uh, intervention. You, yeah, well, yeah, so 2003, shouldn't have been done. It was every reason not to do it, but the Americans did it. And the Chinese may do Taiwan, even though they have every reason not to do it. But the big surprise they're going to find, if they do it, is that the Chinese Navy will be sunk, like 1895. And that could be bad politics for Xi Jinping, because the Chinese Navy was stronger than the Japanese Navy in, 19, in 1895. The Chinese ships were bigger and more modern, uh, and both bigger and more modern, but the Japanese sank them all because one side was Japanese, the other was Chinese. And if they launch a naval operation, they'll have a big surprise. A lot of ships will sink. Um, you know, the Chinese Navy of today is very much like the 1895 Navy. That was called the Beiyang Navy. Mm -hmm. And among other things, it had a wonderful chorus, the Beiyang Navy chorus. So what remained after they met with the Japanese was the chorus, which is still available. You can go on YouTube, Bayan Navy Chorus, very rousing. Dr. Lutfak, I'm, I'm afraid we're uh, almost out of time, but as we're sitting here, not, not so terribly far from where you hail from 
in uh, in Romania. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on the, the role and the place of Central Europe, specifically as a region, both within Europe, but also as somehow situated between the Far East we've been discussing and, and the Middle East and, and Western Europe? Central Europe de- defines a group of countries that are the only Europeans who are not first-class performers in the world scene. All other Europeans are first-class performers, and globally, they all have something. The Swedes have something, you know, Danes have something. The island, island has this sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, undercutting everybody with fiscality and so on, you know. The Irish drink and they attract all these multinational companies that pay taxes because it's cheaper and so on. The Irish have a racket that, that and so on. Everybody has something, and the Central European countries mostly don't. And the reason they don't is because they have not collected, I mean, Romania, Hungary included also, Slovakia. They haven't really uh, made the investment they should have made in education. These are all areas, in, you see, the Romanians have a little oil left or something, but these are all countries that cannot possibly get anything from natural resources. So logically, they uh, national leadership should have understood that this is the uh, there is only one path, which is very high levels of education and uh, technicity and so forth. I mean, they have an example in Israel, which is very familiar to them, because Israel had to spend a lot of money on defense. They still do a lot of money on defense, but they from the beginning, even when they had food rationing in Tel Aviv. They were funding advanced research from the first day. The Weizmann Institute was functioning in 1948, the time when when um, eggs and meat uh, were rationed, uh, and the standard of living was extremely poor, and so. By that is the way to do it. The way to do it is for these European populations to be, uh, you know, made into elite populations. And that is a process that you can do with education, mm-hmm. um, you know, a serious education and uh, uh, and comprehensive education. Not you can't do like the Saudis who are trying to educate petroleum engineers. Mm-hmm. You have to. Uh, then they always remain petroleum. You have to. The I would say that the best example for all these countries is Israel, because Israel has no resources, and very heavy tax from the defense spending, very heavy tax. So if you take that tax of defense spending and you apply it in these conditions, you would be able to change the lives of this region. But the political leaders for different regions, different regions, different countries chose not to do that. You know, this can be done. There are examples of this can be done. In fact, it was done in Taiwan. It was done in Singapore. Korea, most of all. Korea was uh, spectacular for fund- putting a lot of its uh, GDP into education. At the time, they were still very poor. In the exactly. You know, I, was in, I was in Korea when it was an extremely poor country. Uh, and Seoul was a smelly city and so on, you know. Uh, and already they had uh, the Ewa Women's University with 36,000 girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So. The formula is very simple, and it's been proven in in, in Asia. It's also been proven in different places, and of course in Israel. 
because half the Israeli population came from places like Morocco, Algeria, they were extremely primitive. You know, extremely primitive. So that half the population was primitive, plus they had defense spending, which nobody in Central Europe has had. Not under the Warsaw Pact, not under NATO or anything. Well, I can, if I can permit one little intervention here, just like one little uh, counter, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be that Israel greatly profited from all the highly skilled people, highly educated people coming in from around the Western world after the Second World War, and it actually Central Europe has been facing brain drain for decades. Right. So they had very few people coming early on. The big gain they got from was from Russia, of course. Uh, a lot of the Russian elite were, of course, Jews, and uh, the Russians managed to drive them out. And, uh, so they did get, they didn't get brain drain from the West. They got brain drain from Russia. Actually, they've suffered the brain drain to the West because half of Silicon Valley is uh, full of Israelis who are working there or something. Although there's a lot, that brain drain doesn't really matter because if a bunch of Hungarians, you, you expensively train Hungarians into high tech, and the next day they are in California, yes, the day after they're coming back and setting up companies in Budapest. Mm. So, uh, the formula, uh, by the way, uh, the people, the Koreans invested, the Taiwanese invested, and uh, the fact that people then emigrated was turned out to be a gain. Certainly today, there are many Israelis who are living in, in California and a place like this, and they are a very big part in the sustaining the system because they invest in Israel, they come and go, they transfer and all that stuff. The key is, so there is a path, there is a road, clearly nice road, well paved, illuminated, and it says, this is the way to go. And governments find a hundred reasons not to go that way. One final question would be, how many years or decades do you see this the, the, the first dividends being uh, drawn from, from, the, from this uh, path. So from a how, new, what is the time scale? Right. So, again, we can only have a look at the data and so on, but uh, I would say that it's in nothing within five years, a lot uh, soon, pretty soon thereafter. And uh, they, it doesn't take long. It does not take long. And it's a question, for example, and there are, of course, uh, New opportunities. Um, one, uh, uh, you know, there are always new opportunities because of a phenomena of exhaustion, exhaustion phenomena. You know, uh, innovation is always geographically limited. Uh, there was a time when everything was done in Venice, from building ships to printing books. Then it, Venice became a place where they had nice parties, and it moved to uh, to uh, Holland. You know. They build ships in a new way. They print the books in a new way. This always moves around geographically, and uh, it's always for the same reason, that you have a critical mass of people who are, have skills and so on. And uh, as I said, this is the road not taken that is being available. But the Koreans, uh, what the Koreans did was they had the model in front of their noses was Japan. And Japan was, of course, growing enormously during those years. The leader of, of, uh, of Korea, General Park Chung-hee, considered himself a Japanese until he was maybe 40 years old. Mm -hmm. His dream was to become a colonel of the Imperial Japanese Army. 
so for him to imitate Japan was very simple. And the Japan he was imitating was the best Japan ever was because uh, the population of Japan increased between 1939 and 1955. Mm. Increased a lot. Despite all the war deaths. Correct, because it was a normal war. The normal war is a lot of people die. The warriors come home. Women, men like war, women like warriors, and they make children. That was the cycle. The reason why Europe is in a kind of societal crisis is because somebody removed from Europe the principal machine of European growth and development through 2000 years, which was war, of course. Now, the, you, you'll see Ukraine, whatever happens in this war, Ukraine will undergo a huge population boom. The soldiers will come home and they'll make lots of children. This is what happened in Japan. Uh, that's why, part of all the war, there was more Japanese, you know, and uh, Ukrainians will do it. Uh, the, uh, the abolition of war in Europe is, of course, uh, uh, is, you're removing the engine from the car. That's what they're doing. Because Europe always grew from war to war. Wars destroyed things, and immediately the war ended, people would rebuild twice what was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And as I say, the warriors, the soldiers would come home, the women would, who like soldiers would have children, and that's how European populations and European growth went through. Uh, removing war from Europe has removed the engine from Europe. I'm not surprised by the lack of vitality in it. And you will see what will happen in Ukraine, regardless of the outcome. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but we can leave it with that very positive and hopeful uh, thought. Yeah, yeah, so. that's right.